Welcome to the Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. Hello and welcome to this week's Dividend Cafe. This is David Bonson. I am the Chief Investment Officer here at the Bonson Group. We're bringing you our weekly thoughts and commentary, reflections on the market, the economy. I am fresh off of a plane from New York City where I had three days of meetings Our New York office with some very fun announcements we'll be making soon around that. Uh, But then now back in California, recording the podcast here this morning, absorbing, uh, really had a wonderful opportunity last night on a long plane flight home to pour deep into several of the topics I want to address with you all today. So hopefully you'll find this to be a worthwhile podcast, uh, delving into certain things happening in the market this week happening in the uh, economy overall, and I really think the political environment is getting more and more interesting. And then I have two other little topics I want to address with you this week that are near and dear to my heart. Uh, You guys know that I've been spending more and more time this year trying to carve out um, a space in the podcast for various economic truisms and foundational realities that uh, impact the way we understand the overall economic picture in the times in which we live, and I and I want to address something uh, in those lines as well. But but let me start with just this week, because a little bit of volatility to come back into the market. Some might consider it quite volatile, but they'd be wrong, you know, in terms of it's all relative, I suppose, and and on a relative basis, it's nothing to write home about. I'm recording here in the middle of the day on Thursday. And the market's basically flat on the day. And we were up a couple hundred points yesterday, but we were down several hundred, more than several hundred points uh, on Monday and Tuesday, about, I think, 200 Monday and, and over 200 Tuesday. And then we we're up 200 Wednesday and we're flat Thursday. So net, net down on the week. But again, the point I'm making is that there's been a little volatility in the up and downness of this direction that we the week we're going through. And that uh, volatility is entirely related to China and the trade war. And and one of the points that I've been trying to make lately that's important is that's the big – that's it. That's, the, that's the, the one factor out there right now. You know, earnings season from third quarter results is done. Uh, the, the Fed, uh, you know, there's not really a lot of ambiguity right now around what they're doing. They became extremely friendly to markets, and we've gotten – over 20% move higher in stocks since that became clear. At uh, this point, they're, they're, the chances that the Fed is all of a sudden going to churn on risk assets are slim to none, and the ability of the Fed to do much more to help risk assets is slim to none. So you kind of sideline the Fed. There's not a lot of other macro news at this point in time. We're far, far, far too away, far away from the election, too far away from the election to have that being a major impact into where uh, market expectations might be. And so it's the trade war. And the ISA manufacturing numbers came out on Monday for the month of November. They had contracted yet again, and in fact contracted worse than had been expected. You had a pretty precipitous decline in new orders, and again a reinforcement of biz- declining business conditions, declining business activity, and that is most being felt in the industrial part of the economy. And so as long as we sit here with some degree of incompletion in the phase one of the China trade deal, I think you can expect the possibility of a bit more ongoing volatility. Now, one thing worth pointing out 
is it was a couple press conference comments and Trump saying, oh, maybe we'll wait after the election. And, you know, him just kind of, you know, pontificating the way he does. Um, why would the market move down over something that then on the other hand, you hear leaks that, oh, they're much closer to the official, you know, closing of the deal than previously thought. So what's going on out there? Well, obviously, no one really, really knows. And the, if you've learned anything, you've learned that the president could very well change his mind at any time. There's a certain unpredictability to all of it. But here's the very serious reality. OK, um, the market rationally expects that a deal will get done. I believe that the political dynamics for China changed quite a bit a few months ago, um, that they now do not necessarily view that their ability to try to play a role in damaging the U.S. economy to a point where it would damage the re-election efforts of President Trump and therefore damage the po his possibility of, of hammering them in a trade deal. I don't think they view that kind of sequence of events as working to their favor. Um, based on the fact that it, it, there is such a high possibility of a Democratic candidate not necessarily being a great friend to China themselves. So that political uh, gamesmanship was altered, and now we're sitting here more or less. I'm really overly simplifying here, but the, the paradigm is basically that China is willing to commit to higher trade volume with the United States, meaning purchases, yet there is still not the same commitment around the alteration of China's role in the United States technology sector in our supply chain and, and uh, most importantly, in what enforcement mechanisms would exist in the theft of intellectual property of American intellectual property, intellectual uh, in terms of our technology um, sector. And so I think that the two-headed monster uh, from 2018 of the Fed and the trade war has now become a one-headed monster, and it is more or less the primary impactor to, one, the stock market, two, the economy itself via its impact on manufacturing, capital expenditures, and business investment, and number three, the election. That in a year out, uh, you know, if you go into Q1 and in, and from Q1 into Q2 of 2020, and and a sizable trade deal has been arranged that gives Trump a political victory and the economy a little tailwind, that that probably will have a a, a huge out, uh, out uh, impact in what uh, the outcome of the 2020 election ends up being. So that's been the source of volatility in the market this week. And um, I maintain my view that it's fundamental. It's not just noise. It's not just sentiment that there is a real fundamental reality at play um, that where there, the threat of the trade war lingers, it has impacted the confidence of business to make the necessary investments in capital expenditures to drive productive growth. And that therefore, it, although it's a leading indicator, we don't see it immediately. When you see that kind of decline in productive investment, it inevitably catches up um, in the job market, in wages, in um, overall economic growth, and, and ultimately would probably be the catalyst to another recession um, down the line. 
So the inverse of that is that resolution of the trade war opens up the possibility of uh, that resurgence of business confidence we were experiencing earlier um, and out of that business confidence, a uh, uh, rational human action into business investment that would uh, perhaps create the productive projects necessary to continue growing the economy. Now, a lot of people out there, and I'm going to do my first kind of interjection into something that is so important to me, has been for 20 years, um, how we want to think about and deal with as investors, but also as human beings, this sort of uh, cottage industry out there that exists of what I will call perma bears, those constantly selling doom and gloom that have their own belief or theory as to why everything is awful and everything will collapse and it's all fake and it's going to blow up and it's this and it's that and we're always around the corner from a 50 or 70 or 80 percent drop or something like that. And, and that one of the things that um, is most interesting, I, I say it's ironic, but it's actually kind of disgusting, but regardless of how, how descriptive one wants to be about it, the, uh, a perma bear cannot develop a business model very easily around actually managing money and actually, because you know the nature of markets that are up you know thousands of percentage points over decades is that maintaining a, a belief in a fantasy um, gets exposed and you spend most of the time losing money and you have little pockets of time where you get to brag about how right you were about a financial crisis that you were never really right about either. But the, other than those periods of time in which markets are troubled, markets certainly go through trouble all the time, but they're intermittent and they are less frequent than good times. And, and ultimately, this is a self uh, a testing reality because if it wasn't true, people wouldn't be invested in markets and you wouldn't have so much money get made and, and what drives U.S. economic growth and uh, investment in public risk assets. And so it's a pretty bad business model to try to get paid to be a perma bear managing money. And yet what they figured out is, well, it's, it's a short-lived career doing that, but it's an absolutely recession-proof, dependable career to do it by just selling the concepts of doom and gloom in print, in the web, newsletters and websites and articles and books and things like that. And so you have a pretty high-profile group of people out there that they can get interviewed on TV and they can write their different things. And every now and then I get a link, clients, it's a lot less than it used to be, but clients will email and say, what do you think about this guy? And are you worried about this? And oh my God, there's a headline here and some financial pornography site and they're saying that such and such is going to go wrong or what have you. And I, I am critical, of course, of their worldview. There are some of them who really believe it, by the way, but there are a lot of them who don't. But I'm not going to get into that stuff. The disingenuity of them is not my problem. It is the, it, the idea that the markets might drop 4% and they'd been up 400% for the prior 10 years and they'll go, oh, look, we told you. And it happens all the time and it's going to happen again and it's irritating in advance to know that there's some idiot who has cost people hundreds of percent of return who at the first drop of 2.5% is going to try to take credit for something. So there's obviously an arrogance but also a fundamental dishonesty there. But let me get to my real point for you. Human negativity bias is never going away. Uh, we The fact that some people have found a way to monetize it is not a surprise. It is part of human nature. And I want 
to make sure that for the assets that I am the fiduciary steward of, that our business is responsible morally and legally and economically for certain outcomes and, and endeavors, I want to make sure that we do not touch these types of people with a 10-foot pole. Um, we are fully aware that there will be periods of very substantial pain in, in the life of a risk asset investor. That's why it is risk asset investing. There will be more recessions and bear markets. They're part of the journey, and we want to mitigate. We want to dampen the impact of volatility as is appropriate. Uh, we want to utilize risk management. But the notion that we can uh, uh, insulate someone entirely from pain in the market is, is absurd. And, and tail risk, while they certainly exist, are not hedgeable or foreseeable or predictable. Um, and, and we just want to make very sure that we continue to remind people that the perma bears have done extraordinary harm to otherwise well-intentioned people. And that to the extent one has fear because they're a human being, suffers from human negativity bias because they're a human being, there is a remedy for it that will do far better than buying the next uh, charlatan's book. And, and speaking of those various mechanisms that we think are a more effective way to access risk assets and, and access um, a return on one's capital that will help them achieve financial goals, I'm fascinated right now at the short-term outlook on dividend growth. And what I mean by outlook is not necessarily the performance outlook, but the universe of possibilities. At the bottom of the financial crisis, we had 65% of stocks paying a dividend higher than the 10-year bond. Um, a year ago now, it was only 27% because you'd had 10 years of stock prices going higher and 10 years of the bond yield going lower. And as stock prices go higher, the yield as a function of math, of course, goes lower. And so there were just many, there was a significantly lower amount of stocks in that universe by which one could achieve that higher dividend yield at purchase. And yet right now, here we are a year later, and we are back to 65% of companies in the Russell 1000 index offering a dividend yield higher than the 10-year treasury. Except for that's not because we're in a financial crisis. That's not because all stock prices have dropped and therefore dividend yields gone higher. The stock market's up over 20%. And somehow we went from 27% offering a higher dividend to 65. How is that? It's because there's been such robust dividend growth for a lot of companies out of the corporate tax reform and because the treasury yields themselves have dropped so much. We were at two and a half roughly a year ago, and we're at one and a half to 1.7 roughly now. And so the, the conflation of those two factors has made for a significantly more attractive universe in dividend growth. And, and that's very uh, useful for uh, diversified investors looking for those right opportunities. Uh, U.S. economy is doing well. The business economy is slowing. I've spoken about the trade impact from that. But a really, really seri uh, important series of charts at DividendCafe.com this week about um, real disposable income growth, meaning net of taxes, net of inflation, 
and how it had been advancing quite nicely throughout the bulk of the Trump administration and just recently has dropped down to about 1.18 percent um, percentage change. And then the second chart is showing the averages of uh, real per capita disposable income growth going back about 50 years. And you see that it has been over 1% growth a year out from the election for Clinton, for Obama, barely. Well over you know 3% for Reagan, Johnson, Nixon. Um, and that the only two presidents that had sub 1% uh, income growth year over year, real per capita disposable income growth, were Bush 1, who was not reelected, and Jimmy Carter, who was not reelected. So obviously there's all kinds of other factors, and, and you can never assume one particular thing is a foolproof indicator. And six, seven you know, different incidents is not statistically enough for us to— say that this is authoritative, but it is very anecdotally interesting. I think the need to see that real disposable income growth uh, growing at a higher rate like it was through most of the Trump administration is a very good idea. Um, uh, it, it is um, something that I think has come down a bit in light of the trade war, but uh, previously when you look at um, the low inflation uh, tax cuts, low unemployment, healthy economic growth we had until some of the trade war stuff disrupted things. It explains why these data points were so much better two and three years ago than they are now. Uh, finally, I'm going to close with a kind of economic refresher of the week. Uh, there are, by the way, four or five charts at DividendCafe.com that I really uh, will recommend you look to. But let me say this about uh, artificially low interest rates, and I've spoken throughout the year about why I do not believe uh, that they um, stimulate economic growth. And in fact, I believe that they hamper economic growth. Uh, they hamper economic growth of the sustainable variety. Um, that the, the kind of main persistence of, of interest rates that are below their natural rate incentivizes people to leverage up the purchase of pre-existing assets. Um, whether that be real estate or whether it be stocks, there, there are assets already in the economy, already in the society that one can buy more of now and, and achieve a higher return on capital because they let use the uh, below natural rate to leverage up that purchase. But then it disincentivizes the productive investment into new assets that the economy needs, which means whether it takes a month, a year, or a decade, you through time are hampering productivity, let alone the fact you're also distorting markets and driving money into what we call malinvestment, you know, just otherwise bad investment ideas that get distorted by the low cost of funds. Now, of course, if low interest rates were actually a cause for economic growth, then the logic would mean it would indicate that negative interest rates would really, really accelerate growth. You know, if low is good, then zero is even better. And yet, what are the weakest economies in the world right now? The ones with negative interest rates. The, the confusion comes from people mistaking the need for a return on invested capital versus the mere satisfaction that comes from a, low, a below market interest rate. Below market interest rate can work very well 
when it incentivizes the leveraged purchasing of good, productive, uh, pre-existing assets. But it does nothing for the creation of future productive assets, which is needed to drive sustainable productive growth. And that is, of course, the objective we have in our economy is uh, sustained economic growth higher than where we've been. So this refresher I offer you because I really want us as investors to maintain our understanding that where low interest rates right now provide a higher bid to pre-existing assets, they do not satisfy the need for new assets, for new technologies, for new development, for new R&D, for new intellectual uh, property, for, for um, the various activities and endeavors that will drive decades of economic living and thriving. History is clear on this, economic reality is clear, and the notion that we will ask monetary policy to do all the heavy lifting is simply inadequate. Uh, the politics of money section, by the way, I'll just, I provide a pretty long quote from both Stephen Moore and Larry Kudlow, one an unofficial counselor to the president, one the official head of economic counsel in the White House, Larry Kudlow. Um, I encourage you to read the quotes, get an idea as to how strongly they feel about a trade war getting done. And with that said, allow me to um, conclude this week's Dividend Cafe. I really believe that uh, we are going to finish the year in a very different environment than we did last year. There is optimism of a phase one China trade deal getting done, but that is by no means a foregone conclusion, although I think the odds are on the side of it coming to fruition in the weeks ahead. And meanwhile, um, we are going to enter 2020 with an awful lot of thoughts as to what is most important to markets next year. It'll really be one of the first times in a while that we'll have less of a focus and concern around where the central bank is and more of a concern around real fundamentals. And, and we're going to unpack so much of that in the weeks ahead. Reach out with any questions. As always, thank you for listening to and viewing the Dividend Cafe. Thank you for listening to The Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor of the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced here will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinion, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower should not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions for the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date reference. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.